I give thanks uh, this Thanksgiving for our worship ministries of the church. And every week, it's like we come together, we, we think that we're going to hear one sermon from me, but we get two sermons. The sermons and the worship, the songs and the, the sermons uh, and as we open the Word of God, too. Uh, you know, I love it. I, I appreciate the musical abilities of our worship team, but I, I really appreciate our worship leaders when they select songs. That just each song is just so rich in truth. Even that the first Christmas carol. I'm like, man, it's um, Christmas carol. I'm going to sing, you know, Jesus born. You know, those kind of nice things. But begotten, not created. Whoa, that's a that is a fountain of biblical truth right there in that little phrase. Uh, if you don't know what that means, so that's. Well, that's how rich the truths are. Study that, okay? Begotten, not created. That's a significant truth. Anyways, welcome to all of you. Our visitors, welcome to uh, uh, you, those of you that have joined us, uh, even those who came in a little bit later. We're glad to have you here. We open, continue to worship now as we took t- turn to the Bible. Uh, please, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. <coughs> Luke 9, we're just working through the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 27 this day. Now Luke is written by a doctor, medical doctor, Dr. Luke, we can call him. And he writes it to a man named Theophilus. Uh, it's believed that Theophilus was a, uh, a Gentile, a Gentile background believer who had been, probably learned, been taught things, been uh, taught things about Jesus but as the, the church was growing, as the persecution of the church was increasing, uh, there was probably increasing doubts uh, in his mind of whether uh, Jesus, this Jesus that he saw, really is the Christ as, uh, uh, as uh, he had been taught. So Luke, according to his uh, words in the first four verses of the gospel, writes these words so that you, Theophilus, might know the exact truth about the things which you have learned. Uh, that you might know the exact truth. So you, you can be taught things, even as like grow, children growing up in a church, you can be taught things. But to know that things are really true, how do you know that things are true? Well, we can go by experience, perhaps. People will do that. But we can know things are true when we read about it in God's very word. And that's what we're going to look to now. Let's listen to God's word. Luke 9, 18 to 27. Actually, I will, it's a lengthy, uh, well, a little medium text, but I'll read it uh, through the sermon. Let's pray, though, together. Father, we thank you for your word and pray that your word today would, uh, <clears throat> would challenge us, would speak to us, would encourage us. Lord, that you would uh, help us to not be people who just uh, like a mirror, look at it and then walk away and forget. We pray that as we come to your word, that we would be ready to receive the fountain of truth that, that you have for us. That your, you would prepare our spirit to receive your word, to hear a message from you, Lord. Not from me, but from you, Father. Pray that your word would go forth and not return void, that you would accomplish that which you purpose for it to do in the lives of each and every hearer in this room right now. And I pray, Father, especially that there would not be a single soul who does not walk out of here aware of who Jesus is, that he is the king, he's the Christ, he's the Lord, he's the coming king. And, Father, that every one day, every knee shall bow to him. You have given promise to give him a kingdom and dominion that will never end. Lord, I pray that each and every soul here would bend the knee now to Jesus and worship him and serve him and live their lives for him so that we might bring you glory, that we might know true life, true joy because of Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Today's passage is, I think uh, if you're a Christian, you've been reading the Gospels, it's, it's a familiar passage. Uh, 
It's, uh, it's something that you would have read in your Bibles. We find it at least three times in, in the New Testament Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's, it's a, it has uh, several parallels. But it's a passage that I know for myself when I was studying it, it really is a, it's a good uh, kick in the gut. Uh, I think it's a good kick in the gut. And I, I hope uh, as we deliver it, I think Jesus intended it to be a good kick in the gut for his disciples. It would shake them and make them realize what it is that they are doing, what it is that they are to be about as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I, I hope that you will hear it in that tone and as even as uh, Jesus speaks it, but even as I deliver the word of God. But, you know, Jesus taught much in parables, and then there's one parable uh, in Matthew 13. And that kind of just serves as illustration for us as we enter, uh, introduce the sermon. He tells this parable of, in thir- Matthew 13, 24 to 30, the parable of the wheat and tares. I mean, you're probably all familiar with that. Uh, that uh, there was once a landowner who sowed his field with wheat, and then someone came, an enemy came, and sowed tares. Tares are kind of like weeds. They look like wheat. Uh, but they are really, uh, you know, you can't really tell them apart, and they'll grow together. And then, but it's, you can tell once they kind of uh, grow to a more maturity, a little uh, further along, that you realize, that, oh, there, that there's tares, there's these weeds among the wheat. And his servants came and said, look, someone's sown, you know, tares among the wheat. And, and by then, they're all, you know, mature and uh, growing, and he, you can't just, you know, try to take out the tares without harming the wheat. And so you want us to take out the, you know, Cut all the tares? Well, uh, the master says, no, don't uh, wait till uh, basically the time and the harvest when we'll reap everything and then uh, everything will be sifted out between the wheat and the tares. Uh, and the, the, the lesson of the parable of the wheat and the tares is that in the kingdom of God, uh, there are those who profess faith in Jesus. All, everyone in the kingdom of God uh, who identifies with the kingdom of God profess faith in Jesus. But of those who profess faith in Jesus, there are those who are genuinely saved and those who are genuinely lost, despite what they might say about their faith in Jesus. And it will not be revealed until the day of judgment, until the time when the master of the the landowner comes back, until when the king comes back, as we've been singing. It will be a time of not only great salvation when the king comes, but it will be a time of great judgment when the king comes back. And then when he comes back, it will be too late for the tares among the wheat, for there will be judgment upon them. And as a pastor, I often wonder about this passage or that the story. I know in the, in the church today, this morning, all of you here, it's 8 a.m. I know most of you here, if you're here, you profess faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's 8 a.m. Uh, you could be sleeping in. Uh, but, uh, you know, and I, I know we profess faith in Christ, but I always wonder not really uh, whether there are any tares among the wheat. I, I, when I see the scripture, I, I really understand that it's about there are. And my thoughts often are, who are the tares among the wheat? Because I want to, as a pastor, particularly reach those who are tares among the wheat. Because I don't want you to be tares. I want you to be wheat. Because you, you say you're wheat. Maybe you misunderstood you misunderstand something. Maybe there's a misunderstanding about the truth. Maybe you're just a slightly, your perspective about uh, what it means to be a Christian is slightly off. And so it is the task of uh, my, t- my job as well as the, el- the elders to preach the word of God, preach the gospel clearly to help you to understand. I would be, I would be completely sad, saddened in the, in the day of the Lord when he returns 
to find that some of you here who regularly worshipped with us, who listened to the teaching of God's word with us, turned out and who served alongside us, in the end, are to be found to never know, have known life in Christ. And I know that I ask that even of myself. I say, Lord, am I a tear among the wheat? Have I deceived myself even, thinking that I profess all these things about Jesus when perhaps my life does not reflect that? And I hope that as you come to this text, I pray that God would show his mercy upon you, that he would reveal to you if, if you are a tear among the wheat, that you would pray that even now, Lord, if I'm a tear among the wheat. Who wants to be a tear among the wheat? I don't think this is all I want to be. No one will want to be that. How do you know that you are genuinely saved? How do you know that you, are, you genuinely belong to the Lord? Today's passage from Jesus' own mouth gives us an answer to these questions. The 12 disciples have been following Jesus from the very beginning of his public ministry. Over a period of two and a half years, they've been with him, watching him, hearing him, listening to him, learning from him, being with him. And now in preparation for his inevitable journey final journey to Jerusalem, Jesus withdraws along with the 12 to focus on their training. He doesn't quite head to Jerusalem yet. He's going to go north. He's going to north and then towards the west, toward the coast. But he will, in this time period where he draws away with the 12, he begins to teach them, to challenge them with difficult truths about what it means to follow him. And this is a crucial passage for all Christians because in it, Jesus teaches what is required of us as disciples of Jesus. Jesus teaches his disciples through asking questions. And as we study this passage, we're going to outline it basically with two questions. The outline for us this morning will be two questions that every disciple of Jesus must carefully consider before following him. Two questions for you, for me, for everyone who professes faith in Jesus to carefully consider before following him. Let's take a look at question number one. We find in verses 18 to 22. And the first question is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is the, this is the, you know, this, you can weigh both questions really. This is the more important question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Verse 18, we, we read, we started looking at the scriptures now. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them saying, Who do the people say that I am? Once again, in the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus praying. We find him often praying. Luke alone reveals this this little detail by him praying. Because Luke, more than any of the two other Gospels, records Jesus praying particularly at significant moments in his ministry. He's praying uh, before selecting the twelve, praying before beginning his ministry, praying at a difficult time. And here, uh, he is praying before preparing his disciples for what it, for, uh, to consider who he truly is. Now, some time has passed since the feeding of the 5,000, which was in the previous uh, text. He, that, that very um, powerful testimony of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that, uh, remember, all four Gospels record. Jesus now moved on from Galilee. Matthew and Mark tell us that he has gone to a town, a district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea is a kind of, it's a north of Galilee, about 20-some miles at the base of Mount Hermon in Israel. And uh, Jesus, 
uh, not in the city proper, but outside the city, is, is praying alone uh, because he is about to teach his disciples of the truth of who he is and why he came. And he knows that this is a truth that his disciples will find very hard to accept. It's a message that we'll, well, they won't even get, actually, as we'll see along the way. And he asks a very specific question of his disciples as we read. He doesn't ask, notice, he doesn't ask, what do people say about me? You know, sometimes we ask, hey, what do people say about me? Oh, yeah, Henry, he's a nice guy, friendly, smiles a lot. Rather, he's asking, who do people say that I am? So he's not asking about his personality or character. He's asking about his identity. And they answer, verse 19. They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. Their answer basically revealed that people saw him as a great religious leader, that he was among the greats as far as uh, the religious leaders in their day. Some, In fact, no one says that he was a, a new kind of religious leader, but everyone is saying that he was a religious leader of old who had come back to life again. That's how amazing his miracle, his, his ministry is. They're not saying, oh, he's a new prophet. They say, oh, he's one of the old prophets that has come back to life. That's how amazing Jesus is to them because he's doing all these wonderful miracles. Some thought he was John the Baptist, come back to life. Of course, John the Baptist had, become, had been beheaded by this time. John the Baptist was a truly a great religious leader. He was the promised messenger of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, who would precede the coming of the Lord. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, according to Luke 1.17. He was the, the Nazarite who denied his own comfort. He, he wore camel's clothing and, uh, uh, he, for the sake of a calling uh, to call people to repent and prepare the way for the, prepare for the Lord. This was John's ministry. John was a great religious leader. But nevertheless, Jesus was not John the Baptist come back to life. Others, however, said that Jesus was Elijah come back to life. Elijah was also a great religious leader. He was a prophet who performed great wonders in the days of the divided kingdom. He provided unending flour for that widow and her family. He raised the widow's son from the dead. He defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. Whoosh, with that fire, I love that. That's, that's what made it. At Mount Carmel, he opposed in his days boldly the evil king Ahab and his queen Jezebel. And even at the end of his life, he did not even die but it was taken up in the heaven with a chariot of fire. Because of Malachi 4.5, the Jews believed that Elijah would return before the coming of the Lord. Elijah was a great religious leader. Nevertheless, Jesus was not Elijah come back. Nor was Jesus one of the prophets of old resurrected either. Certainly the prophets were all great religious leaders. They were spokesmen of God. They spoke his word to God's people at opportune times. They were his servants. But, and, but Jesus was no mere great religious leader. Jesus was greater than John the Baptist. Jesus was greater than Elijah. Jesus was greater than one of the prophets. And while obviously the people thought highly of Jesus, they, they thought he was somebody come back from the dead. They believed that he was simply another great religious leader. But Jesus does not allow his disciples to hold this view of him. Jesus would say, I am not merely a great religious leader. Verse 20, 
And he challenges the disciples. He said, all right, he's kind of found out what the people say about him. Verse 20, he says this. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Jesus emphasizes the word you. He says, but as for you, who do you say that I am? Now, it may be helpful, certainly, to know what others believe. We, we kind of do that. Hey, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And we go to people that are reputable. We feel respect. And we say, who do you think Jesus is? And that's fine. There's, there's an aspect to that. And that may be helpful. But the only thing that matters truly for you, for your soul, is who you say that Jesus is. Not what Pastor Henry says of who Jesus is. Not what, you know, uh, Brother Ed in the back says. Not what Brother Tony here says about Jesus. But it's about who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus asked this question of his disciples, and he would be asking you of this very question. Who do you say that I am? Again, it's not about identity. It's not about, it's not about character or personality, but about identity. And Peter nails the answer. Speaking on behalf of the disciples, Peter knew that who Jesus was. Jesus was and is the Christ of God, he says. He is the Messiah of God. And by the way, Christ is not, when he says Jesus is the Christ of God, he's not just recognizing his, Jesus' last name. But rather, it's a reference to who Jesus is. It's his title. Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. In both words, Christos in the Greek and Messiah in the Hebrew means anointed. It means anointed. Anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil when they were installed in their offices. But this an idea of anointed one was most associated with the kings. The kings of Israel, each one would be anointed with oil as a symbol that they were the, they were the appointed king. And Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the messianic king. He was the one whom God promised would come and establish an eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness, according to Daniel. Peter's confession was a groundbreaking confession at this point. For the first time, the disciples confessed to, to Jesus their faith in his identity as the Messiah of God. Now, with such a significant truth then, one might think that Jesus would then tell his disciples that now that you know this truth, go tell everyone. But is that what he does? That's not what happens. Look at verse 21 22. What does he tell them? Surprisingly, he says, but he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Although Peter rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah, he along with the other Jews and uh, he along with all the other Jews of the day saw the Messiah as not who, who Jesus came as, not how he would come they had this misunderstanding of the Messiah. They read all the prophecies, just as we read them earlier this morning, Daniel 7, 13, 14, for instance. They saw him as a king who would come and reign. And when you think of a king who comes and reign, well, if he's going to reign, then he's going to defeat all his, you've got to defeat all the other kings, or you've got to somehow uh, subdue all the other kings. 
And so many of the Jewish people expected a king who would come who would subdue their enemies. And the major enemy of that day was the, the Romans. They would subdue the Romans. And he would establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, his throne in Jerusalem, and everyone would flock to Jerusalem to worship this king. Everyone. So they, they had a really this strong sense that the Messiah would be a political kind of king. And this is why Jesus commands his uh, disciples not to tell anyone about who he is. Because for him to say he's the Christ would immediately think that, oh, he's the king. And they would try to make him king right there and then. But Jesus didn't come to set the world free from the political oppression of the Romans. He did not come to set us free and give us political liberty. I think many of us, are, you follow the news recently, especially Hong Kong, there's, there's a fight for liberty out there. Jesus did not come to set us free from political liberty, set us free from oppression of evil governments. He came to set the world free from sin. He came to set us free from that which truly holds us bondage, a sin that we cannot throw off. You can throw off evil governments, but you cannot throw off sin. It binds us. It holds us slaves to its rule. And all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Scripture. But Jesus comes to set us free from this. And he begins, that's why he reveals in the latter verse of why he is coming. Verse 22 says, the Son of Man must. The Son of Man. So he uses the Son of Man here, first of all, as a, it's another title of the Messiah. It's found from, taken from Daniel 7, 13 to 14. For the most part, sometimes we, when we hear this term son of man, a lot of times we think of it as the term idea of referring to his humanity. And that is the phrase son of man does refer to a person who's a human being, someone who's a son of man as opposed to a son of God. But this son of man, because of Daniel 7, 13 to 14, one like a son of man, this became a, a, a messianic title. And of all the titles that Jesus uses of himself, he doesn't call himself the Christ. He often refers to himself as the son of man. And he usually speaks in the third person, for the Son of Man this and the Son of Man that. The Son of Man is one who is given authority, glory, power to establish an eternal kingdom. And what was God's plan for the Son of Man? What must the Son of Man experience? He'll say it real quite clear. clearly. Jesus says to them, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the King, must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and must be raised again. This was completely unexpected. This is not this is not the political king that they were thinking about. They don't think about a king who comes to to be crucified and to die, to suffer in shame, to be to be rejected by people. They expected a king to come who would reign. And they were, in a sense, right. For Jesus, one day, will return in that way just as we sung in our morning songs. But they failed to understand that the Messiah would first come to suffer. Now, of all the Old Testament scriptures, does it not speak to that? And maybe, and it does. It does. Daniel speaks of the Messiah being cut off, having nothing at the end of 69 weeks, according to Daniel 9.26. Isaiah speaks of his servant who was despised and forsaken of men, pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, According to Isaiah 53, 
See, Jesus was making clear to his disciples that the Messiah had to come and suffer and die. It must happen. And this is something you and I take for granted today. Well, we have Jesus, why did he come? He came to suffer and die. But that was not the expectation of the people in the day. Jesus is the Christ who would come to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and raise again. In in light of who Jesus is, he's the Messiah, the million-dollar question for you and me is this. Do you believe who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he's the king? Do you believe he's the Christ of God? Do you believe that it was necessary? And what's more, do you, not, do you believe that it was necessary for the Christ to, to suffer and be rejected, be killed, and be raised up on the third day? And of course, that he did so for the sins of the world, including yours and mine. See, Jesus is the king who came to die for his subjects. And it's been a long time. I, I've not heard of any kings in our world, our kings even. We call them presidents that have laid down their lives for their subjects. In a world of sinful men and women, most of our kings and queens and rulers use their power, use their abilities to serve themselves. I'm sure they're all well-meaning people, but there's power, absolute power corrupts. There is that, but one day our king will come. He will reign, and he has already shown us the kind of king he is. He's a good king. For he came and he laid his life down for us. What a loving king we have. A great king. Is he your king? Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Have you believed upon what he's done for you? That's question number one. Who do you say that Jesus is? So the second question is this. How do you follow Jesus? How do you follow Jesus? And those of you who are profess faith in Jesus Christ, you're disciples of Jesus, the question for you to ask is, how do I follow Jesus? You find this in verse 23 to 27. <clears throat> if Jesus is your king, then how does your life reflect it? If I walked down the street, you kind of saw me, you probably wouldn't know that. You know, say, hey, who's king? Who, who, who do you serve? They wouldn't, we probably wouldn't know. But if you saw my life long enough, or someone saw your life long enough, would one be able to tell who you serve? We don't really think about that these days. We think everybody, especially in America here, we all serve ourselves. That's my own self. I live for myself. But there should be a sense in that our lives should somehow reflect who we live for, who we serve, who we're about. And Jesus' teaching here makes it quite clear that one cannot continue to live their lives just as they did before putting their trust and faith in him. Verse 23 is a key verse. Verse 23, let's read there. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, if anyone wishes to follow Jesus, anyone wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if anyone wants to be a Christian, if anyone wants to be a disciple, there are three commitments, three, they're given as three commands that are involved for those who follow Jesus. Number one is to deny yourself. To deny yourself is simply to say no to yourself. Say no to just whatever you want to do, whatever ways you choose to live your life. To deny yourself is a recognition that you are no longer the Lord of your own life. Therefore, you will not choose to do just whatever you want, but you will yield what you want to what God wants. You will consider that what I want is really what God wants in my life. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, uh, these verses say, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You see, when Jesus came, he came to bring salvation to all men, so that, if we, and he brings salvation to us, so that not we just continue living in sin, but we would say, start thinking, that we start saying no, deny sin in our lives, deny ungodly ways of our life, deny the worldly way, desires of our life, deny, and instead to live sensibly, righteously, godly. That's to simply follow God's ways, to follow Jesus' ways. See, to deny yourself is the first commitment that one makes as one who follows Jesus. To deny yourself is a life of self-denial. Number two, a second commitment that we make for those of us who follow Jesus to take up your cross means to be 100% committed to Jesus. Now the cross, uh, as we see here, one must take up their cross, Jesus says. The cross was a symbol of suffering and death. Those who were condemned to be crucified had to carry the beam on their own cross. And uh, this, this cross that we have is real small, but you can imagine it's large enough for a human being to be, to be uh, uh, nailed to and then lifted up high. A figure of speech, a figure of speech basically for one who you must be willing to suffer. Yes, even die. Today, we would simply say that you need to be committed to Christ, even if it means ridicule, shame, suffering, and yes, even death. It is a willingness to suffer and sacrifice everything and anything for the sake of following Jesus. It may mean martyrdom. It may mean losing your job, your home, your family, your friends, your reputation, Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, this is not an optional thing. You know, it's not just for this willingness to, uh, to, uh, to sacrifice, to become again. It's not a, like, it's just not like for, well, those are for the super godly Christians, like the second class Christians, you know. You want to be a, you want to be a, a private Christian? Yeah, you just believe in Jesus. But you want to be a private first class Christian? All right, then you, You've got to go the next step and, and be 100% committed. No there's, no, there's no categories like that. You either are a Christian or you're not. You're the disciple or you're not. And both involve a 100% commitment, willingness to sacrifice to follow the Savior. See, to take up your cross is a life of sacrifice. And I hope that as Christians, I mean, well, you're 8 a.m. in service, okay? You get the idea. You've sacrificed some sleep probably just the morning to be here. And some of you stayed up late, I'm sure. And that's just a small sacrifice. But it's a life of small sacrifices, sometimes culminating in bigger sacrifices. Thirdly, a life of commitment. How do you, to follow Jesus is all involves, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I missed the text there. Uh, my point is involves <clears throat> following him, follow him. That's point number three. To follow Jesus is to simply, means to obey him. To obey him and follow after me. Unlike the first two commands, this command here in the Greek, it's what's called, we call the Greek present tense. <clears throat> and whereas the first two commands are kind of decisive, decisive acts, they're decisions that one makes that influence all of life, this really is a command that emphasizes the continual act, activity of our life. That to follow Jesus is to, to follow him, is to continually obey him, to pra- uh, regularly uh, as a characteristic of our life, to obey him. See, obedience to Jesus' teaching is a characteristic of those who are followers of Christ. 
We should be characterized by obedience to him. We should be following Christ's teaching. We should be trying to keep them and observe them. There's no such thing as a disciple who does not obey Christ's commands regularly. Now, do we all, at one point or other, maybe even on a, on a daily basis, at times disobey the Lord? Yes, yes, we do. But it should not be the pattern of our lives, characteristic of our lives, characteristic of our whole days. We live in our lives each day as if we do not care what Jesus says about our lives. And we can just get to live all my ways. And I, got, I already got my ticket to heaven. Uh, that's good. I'm good with God. And I'm just going to live my life just doing whatever I want, whatever makes me happy, whatever pleases me. Jesus taught the foolishness of this when he said in Luke, Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? <coughs> This is one of the identifying marks of a disciple. It fits again with the Great Commission when Jesus told us to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to, to know all that I have commanded you, teaching them to just memorize all that I command you, teaching them to speak about all the things that I have commanded you. No. He says, teaching them to observe, to keep, to obey. All that I commanded you. You know, <clears throat> an illustration I've used before, but I'll say it again. I like it. What would you think of a driver, as you're driving home today, who just doesn't follow the rules of the road? And what if you, some of you are riding airplanes, some of you are from out of town, so you're going to ride an airplane. What would you think of a pilot who doesn't follow the, the rules of the skies? Or perhaps some of us uh, think of the elections are coming time. Of some, been a, the election is on our minds. Who would, what do you think of a politician who doesn't follow the laws of the land? Okay, resist the jokes. But they wouldn't be considered drivers, pilots, or politicians for long, would they? Because they don't follow the rules. They might say they're a driver, but if they don't follow the rules of the road, they're not going to be drivers for long. If they may say they're pilots, but they're not following the rules of the pilot, they're not going to be allowed to be pilots for long. If they're politicians, they may not follow the rules of government, <coughs> but they, they will not be politicians for long. We will vote them out. Similarly to Christians, how can you be a Christian if you are not following the rules of Christ, the commands of Christ? No, none of us are perfect. Okay, I, you know, I'm not throwing stones at you guys. All right, these thrones, these I'm, I got a couple lumps already myself. But our, how can we claim to be Christians if we are not following the commands of Christ? And now, let me make sure it's not the obedience to His commands that saves us. It's not by any works that we are saved, but rather an attitude of obedience, an attitude, a life of submission to Jesus as our Savior and Lord reflects the salvation. It, it, it is a manifestation of this faith and love that we have in, in, in Jesus. To follow Jesus is a life of submission. Can you say, as we looked at this passage, that your life reflects self-denial, sacrifice, and submission for Jesus' sake? Don't answer it too quickly. Take some time to reflect upon it this week. This is what a life that follows Jesus looks like. Knowing that 
<clears throat> Jesus, our Savior, the King, came to live this exact kind of life. Jesus came to live a life of self-denial, sacrifice, and submission for our sakes. We who follow him ought to live a life of self-denial, sacrifice, and submission for his sake. This is what a life that follows Jesus looks like. Now, there's more verses that have come and these verses that follow are, are Jesus' encouragement to his disciples. He knows that they will need encouragement to live this kind of life. This is not a, a life that, I, you know, hey, sign me up. You know, I don't think most of us are like, like that. Is this what, and he tells, and he gives us these three, sort of three encouragements, motivations in verse 24 to 26. Verse 24, let's look at them quickly. For, notice each motivation begins with the word for. Verse 24, 25, 26, for this, for this, for this. So these are all reasons. First, uh, reason number one, for motivation number one, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. If you want to save your life, if you want to save all that you're, you, you, the life that you're living, if you want to save all, then you will, and you want to hold on to your own ways, you want to hold on to your own thoughts, you want to hold on to your own manner of life, you want to hold on to your own possessions even, that you might include it, then you're going to lose your life, Jesus says. But whoever loses his life, whoever's willing to give it all up, sacrifice it, give it over to Jesus for his sake, this is the one who will save it. Oddity, you want to you save your soul? You've got to lose this life. But if you want to keep and save this life, live only for this life on earth, you may end up losing your soul. For his motivation number two, so that's why I follow Jesus. Verse 25, for what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So, and really this idea of saving yourself. You might just want to save your own life, but Jesus goes a little further. He says, what if you not just want to save your own life? What if you could just get everything in this world? Think about all that is in this world. There are a lot of nice things in this world, right? What if you could have it all? What if you could have it all? It says, would that profit you? Would that be, would that be good, useful for you? If you lose and forfeit your soul, or yourself. You could have everything in this world, all the power, all the wealth, all the possessions, all the prestige, all the people that you would like in this world. But if you have it all, but you lose your soul, what use is all that? Because you would spend, what is that, what is all the things in this world compared to an eternity in hell? It's not like you can, if you had everything in this world, you couldn't even take it when you die. You couldn't take it and give it to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, look, I gained the whole world and I want to give it to you. Jesus would say, I made this world. Well, it's already mine. But you can't even take it with you to offer it to Jesus or offer it to, uh, you can even try to offer it to Satan in hell, I suppose be no 
It would no, it would, all the world you gain it all, it would not purchase a single ounce of your soul. Your stuff is simply temporary. This life is a temporary life. <clears throat> it is a blessed life, no, no doubt. We, <clears throat> but don't mistake gaining this world for that which is life eternal. Only those who have denied themselves, taken up their cross and followed Jesus, will see eternal life, will gain their soul. Verse 26, the third motivation. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. <clears throat> if you are ashamed, that is, if you're someone who's ashamed of Jesus, you don't, <clears throat> and this is, <clears throat> this is probably a good test. Excuse me. <clears throat> my throat's dry. If you are a Christian, and you're out living in the world, <clears throat> but you're ashamed of Jesus, and we live in a pretty, in a world that's kind of, you know, not very pro-Jesus, okay? I understand. We're ashamed to tell people that we're Christians. We're ashamed to, to speak God's word to them, truths to them, share with them what we, <clears throat> who we are, what we're about, who we follow. It says here quite clearly, you're ashamed of me and my words. If you don't want to speak up for me, Jesus says. If you don't want to speak up my truths, then the Son of Man, when Jesus, when he comes back, when he comes in glory, and when he sits on the throne, he will be ashamed of you. He will refuse to acknowledge you. That's another just reminder that he will reject you, refuse you. Just as if you are living, you could claim you're a Christian all you want, but if you are ashamed of him and his words, that's a, and if you do that consistently, once in a while, we all have moments where, oh man, I, I blew that opportunity. I, I get that. But if consistently in our life, we don't want to speak of Jesus, we don't want to speak of his words, then that may be a really good, strong sign that we do not truly know Jesus. We don't believe who he is. And then verse 27, Jesus offers a final word of encouragement. Because this is a life, this is the life of what it means to follow Jesus, a life of self-denial, sacrifice, and submission. And, it, and <clears throat> there will be times that will be hard, <clears throat> especially for the early church. But Jesus offers a final word of encouragement in verse 27. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. <clears throat> when you're sacrificing, when you're, when you're living your life, when you're submitting to the Lord, when you're denying yourself, there will be times when you wonder, is this all worth it? Is this, is this what I'm, I'm going to lay my life down? But what am I laying my life down for? And we know that we're told in Scripture that we're laying our life down for the for. A, for, because it's, we will one day have a, a place in the kingdom of God, in, God, in, eternal, in eternal life, with, God, with Jesus in heaven. But for these disciples, these 12, who are going to be the start of Jesus' basically his whole the ministry of the gospel, he offers them a little hope. He tells them, that, tells them particularly, some of you who are standing here will not die until you, you see the kingdom of God. You can actually see it for yourself. This would, by the way, would refer immediately to the passage that follows when Peter, James, and John will get to see Jesus, the king, transfigured before them. They would see him in his glory. They'll hear God speak about the son. It'll be a powerful testimony. And that will, that will charge him because we know this is true because Peter will write about it later on in 1 Peter. That, this, that moment transfiguring when he sees the king for who he is, truly revealed, he will, that will transform him. Or at least when he grasped it. So, <clears throat> and then, just simply these two questions. Who do you say that Jesus is, and how do you follow him?
How do you follow? What does your life look like? Do you follow Jesus? Then your life should be a life of self-denial, sacrifice, and submission to the Lord. If it's not, then I would encourage you to consider what it actually what it actually is that you believe about Jesus. Who do you say that he is? Is he the Christ? Is he the king? And if he's really the king, and if he's really the, the Christ, then won't you obey him? He's not really a king if you don't obey him, at least to you. He's not your king. Ultimately, we will all bow the knee, as we sung about, actually. But in this life, there's an opportunity for you to decide to choose to receive Jesus for who he is, to acknowledge him as the king, and to willfully, willingly bow the knee, confess with our tongue that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is my Lord, my God, and I live my life for him, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus is the king. Is he your king? And how do you show that in your life? Great questions to ask for all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for our time in your word. Sobering text, Father, we, we, <coughs> as we've read and heard. And Lord, I pray that uh, none of us here would be, uh, would be offended by your words, but that we would simply take this time as an opportunity for you to cause us to humbly reflect upon our lives. That we would take, even in Paul's words, and says, to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. Lord, cause us to show and to cause each of us here to ask, ask ourselves the question, who do I say Jesus is? Is he the king? Is he the Christ? The one who will reign forever when he returns? And if I believe that, Lord, then how does my life reflect that I follow Jesus? How, do, how does our lives do? Is my life a life of self-denial, sacrifice, submission? Or am I ashamed of him? Or do I live for myself? Do I live for my comforts? Do I live for my own goals and purposes? Lord, Please, if there are tears among the wheat here, Lord, have mercy upon us. Show us an understanding of who Jesus is through the preaching of your word this morning. Cause your people here, all who name the name of Christ, to truly have the confidence to know that they belong to you. Father, I pray that there's any here who don't know Jesus Christ to say, Lord, that even now you cause them to consider what it means to follow Jesus, that they would count the cost, that they would not make a decision based upon motions, but a decision that's carefully considered. A king <clears throat> who will return, who will sit on a throne, who will bring salvation to all who abandoned the need to him, but judgment to all have refused. Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself that one day, Lord, you will bring your king
bring back Jesus so that he would sit on his throne, that you would be glorified and grant him all the power, the glory, the dominion, the glory that he deserves. Father, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Head on out of Sunday school class downstairs, uh, and we'll see you next week. Lord bless you.